It's Saturday at 9. Uh, it must be time for money management. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and hopefully give you some insights into what's going on in all this stuff. Uh, we had an interesting week, I think that's fair to say. Uh, not a bad one, but an interesting one. The uh, markets basically were unchanged compared to a week ago, but uh, let me read you the data from yesterday. The Dow ended the uh, Friday at 34,580, down just 59 points. It had been down about 300 points toward the right at the close, but about an hour before, and I guess some program trades came in to suck up the difference. The S&P uh, ended at 4538, NASDAQ closed at 15,085, Russell 2000, it was at 2159, Gold settled at seventeen seventy, silver at twenty two thirty two, crude was last traded at sixty six twenty six a barrel, ten year treasury bid at one point three five percent, and soft white wheat was at ten eighty three a bushel. Now, um, December is statistically one of the best months of the year for stocks uh, since nineteen twenty eight. December's been an up month, 74% of the time. That's the highest percentage of all months. And uh, even with our flipping and flopping this week, the major indicators are still doing pretty well. The Dow up about 13% year-to-date, S&P up 21%, and the Nasdaq up uh, over 17%. So we're doing okay. However, you know, we're still a bit of a big fuss being made out of what we saw last week, last Friday particularly, but when you zoom out, the S&P had just one down week after making a new all-time high, and the Dow still above that, its former highs from May. Energy stocks positive for the week, despite crude oil falling, falling by double digits. You know, a week ago Friday, uh, and this is the fuss factor, um, the Dow was down 905 points. That was 2.5%. That was its worst day of the year. S&P and NASDAQ each were down about 2.25%. Um, and again, it's, uh, it was in response to the, uh, ver- the new virus, <laughs> I won't say new and improved, but anyhow, the new virus, as well as some other issues and selling is also being helped by, uh, year end tax loss selling, as well as portfolio managers taking profit before year end. Now, tax loss selling is something you might want to consider for your non-qualified accounts. That is to say your non-retirement accounts where you can take some of the losses that you've had this year to help offset uh, some of the gains you may have taken. Now, if you are, that's realized. In other words, you've actually made the sale. Uh, if they're unrealized, you don't have to do anything. But uh, if you've taken some of those, you might want to um, go over with your tax person and just see how you can benefit from uh, offsetting those. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, uh, and again, going back to last Friday, and it's carried over through this last week, what started as concerns over the virus, it basically turned into fears over the Fed's uh, newly found hawkishness, as they cher- choose to categorize it. Um, you know, the uh, the virus is, and I know some of you are going to go, oh, that can't be true, but the virus is not really that involved in what's going on in the market, other than perhaps a little day-to-day headline stuff. 
It is, what is the Fed going to do? That's what's driving the bus right now. And just by getting ahead a little bit, they have a meeting here December 15th where uh, they're probably going to make it a little more clear as to what their thoughts are about tapering, etc. And, you know, consider, because as I was saying, the market hadn't really done a lot. They, uh, the S&P had gone 29 days without more a change of more than 1%. Now, this week, we've had five in a row, which means exactly that. We've had five in a row. It's not indicative of anything. And, uh, you know, interestingly, the market has treated the virus and the Fed in similar ways. That is uh, uh, fear at first, uh, followed by bullish reconsiderations. With the virus, it appears the market's more concerned with the government's possible responses than with the virus itself. And that is absolutely spot on. Now, the stay-at-home stocks that benefited from uh, <laughs> the old virus and the lockdowns, you know, Etsy, DoorDash, Zoom, DocuSign, all those, they were the worst performers this week. <clears throat> and uh, you would think that would be the opposite reaction if uh, this um, new virus was really considered that big a deal. Uh, and again, I'm referring strictly to the market. I'm not talking about anybody's health or what have you. The sell-off basically suggests that investors are betting that no matter what happens with this new virus, the U.S. is done with the shutdowns. Certain urban areas in the country could be stuck in a cycle of fear, which each new variant leading to more extreme measures there. And this is where the policymakers and individuals with disproportionate influence live, and their mindsets have become gradually divorced from the rest of the population. And I would just suggest you look at the packed stadiums for football and basketball games and afterwards there's no pile of dead folks outside of them so i don't know you tell me why we're doing it so volatility tends to feed on itself in the markets you know in other words high volatility creates more high volatility low volatility more lower volatility and this year the market's fallen one percent more than one percent 17 times now, eight of those times, it was up by more than 1% the next day. So I believe that's a strong case for uh, headline avoidance, a.k.a. don't trade the headlines. That's not good for your ulcer or your bottom line. Now, our next couple of weeks, we'll likely see the risk appetite be taking it, of the market be taking a cue from uh, incremental virus updates, the supply chain issues, and probably every incremental inflation rating. Now, Jim Paulson, who is chief investment strategist for Luthold, he had this to say, um, and I'm quoting, fear and greed will dominate activity as investor worries shift between concerns. The worst is not yet over and anxieties of missing out on any recover, recovery, unquote. Now, see, these are the operative terms, fear and greed, worries, concerns, anxieties. You know, he keeps seeing these w words in all these sentences and, you know, some people, it's, it's going to bother them because if... These guys supposedly have these concerns and anxieties. Well, I must have to have them too. Don't do that. Now, Funstrat, Tom, uh, Funstrat uh, their, their head uh, market strategist, a gentleman named Tom Lee, we've quoted before, he's got uh, this to say. We'd be aggressive buyers of uh, this particular pullback, you know, as with the case of the beta and delta variants. The bark, as he chooses to call it, has proven much worse than the bite in each of those precedent instances. The market carnage, in our view, will be short-lived and transitory. 
Now, Dr. Jeremy Siegel, he of the Stocks for the Long Run book, he said, I wouldn't be surprised to see a correction, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see the market up because earnings have been the strongest we have had in history. And that's a true thing, folks. Earnings are also the major driver of the market, along with all the liquidity. Now, here's a, here's a stat you might want to put in your mind. The last two quarters saw U.S. business have its widest profit margin since 1950. That is why the stocks are up, not bubbles or mirrors or whatever. They're making money, and so they're being bid up. That's how it goes. Marco Kalanovich, he's uh, J.P. Morgan's chief global market strategist, he says he feels the recent turmoil caused by the virus may offer investors a chance to position for a trend reversal in reopening and commodity trades. Now, I've said this many times, and I think it's just worth mentioning again. When you get these quotes from these uh, strategists, folks, most of them are oriented toward talking to traders because getting a position at trend reversal in reopening commodity trades, that's not long-term investors. And that's why another reason why you should kind of keep what the uh, strategists are saying just nice to know because they're not oriented toward investors. They're oriented toward traders. Very short-term, you know, day after tomorrow kind of thing is ultra long-term to those guys. And finally, Emmanuel Cow of Barclays Bank says, uh, we remain of the view that overall macro and liquidity conditions are supportive of stocks and advise to add on weakness looking for the bull market to carry on. So that's pretty good news, I think, in the greater scheme of things. Now, we're going to take our first break, and we'll be back afterwards. I'm going to talk about some of the economic stuff that came out this week, but I'm also going to be talking about investing in general in this inflationary environment and kind of the attitudes and background you might want to keep uh, in order to help you make some good, informed decisions. Well, on Tuesday, uh, this last Tuesday, he said, Mr. Powell said, he thinks reducing the pace of monthly bond buys can move quicker than the uh, schedule announced earlier in the month. So that's uh, called the taper, the tapering back their uh, purchases. So, and then on Tuesday when he said this, the averages all just went right to the bottom, right to the basement. And uh, he said, uh, and I'm quoting, at this point, the economy is very strong. And this is Jerome Powell speaking. The economy is very strong. Inflationary pressures are higher. And it is therefore appropriate, in my view, to consider wrapping up the taper of our asset purchases perhaps a few months sooner. I expect we'll be discussing that at our upcoming meeting, which, by the way, comes uh, the 15th of December, I believe. Now, his comments suggest that the focus has now changed to fighting inflation and negative impacts rather than any more potential disruptions in activity from any new virus. As I said, that's the trend of the markets. The, the virus is important to some people, but the market has kind of put it in the rearview mirror, it would appear. Tightening policy too quickly, he said, could derail the economic recovery at a time of continued uncertainty over the duration of the health crisis. Moving too slowly could fuel inflation pressures, which were created by the reopening from the pandemic. Now, again, uh, in case you missed it, last month, the Fed said they would uh, taper back its bond purchases by $15 billion each month for the next eight months. And that would zero out the bond buy, and we'd probably be looking at rates going up maybe next June, June of 22. Now, he, 
Mr. Powell has suggested that the Fed's going to accelerate that schedule um, and they will update their economic projections at their next meeting. Now, we've gotten pretty used to having pretty used to having the Fed having our uh, financial backs, as it were. Easy money from the Fed been one of the best things for the market because stocks love low interest rates. And that's for two reasons. One is that interest is a cost for businesses and higher rates do eat into profit margins. Lower rates mean it's cheaper to borrow money to fund uh, business plans for expansion. The other reason is that fixed income products, in other words, bonds and those kinds of things, are in constant competition with stocks for investors' money. Now, 40 years ago, the 10-year yield was going for north of 15%. Now, let me throw in as an aside, interest rates uh, were um, were high. Uh, inflation rate was running around 12%. Top uh, income tax rate was 70%. It wasn't a happy time. So now the 10-year is at 1.35%. That's helped kept the stocks at historically high levels. Now, whenever someone says stocks are pricey, you got to ask compared to what? You know, while actual higher rates are ultimately troubling for stock investors, higher inflation rates, we still have a long way to go. The Fed will have to raise rates a lot more before they're higher than the current rate of inflation. And the longer inflation lasts, the more pressure will be on the federalities. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Now, uh, going back to some of these reports, we'll give a burst transmission here. According to the National Retail Federation, holiday sales should exceed the rosiest expectations. Uh, according to those nice folks, uh, their take, trade group economist, Jack Kleinhans, said uh, yesterday that spending in November and December could grow as much as 11.5% compared to a year ago. And uh, by the way, this excludes spending at uh, car dealers, gas stations, and restaurants. So this is more substantial purchases. Now, as far as employment's concerned, well, we had a few things come out. Uh, the private sector payroll data uh, showed uh, 534,000 jobs added in November, uh, much above the expectations. Initial jobless claims for this past week, uh, they were expecting 240,000 folks. Well, it showed up with 199,000, and that was the lowest number filing for unemployment since November of 1969, and we had a whole lot fewer people at that time. And now the jobs report, which came out yesterday. Uh, Non-farm payrolls increased by just um, 210,000 in November, but the uh, national unemployment rate fell to 4.2%. Unemployment is now lower than it was at any point, any point in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I believe that counts as good news. Um, you know, it, they were expecting the rate to be about 4.5%. And here's the thing you got to remember. The figure wasn't a reflection of folks dropping out of the labor force, as declines in the rate sometimes are, but big differences in how the data is compiled with a household survey and an employer survey. And I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but that's kind of the bottom line of it. Um, civilian employment, uh, is an alternative measure that includes small business startups. That was up 1.1 million in November, uh, upward revisions in prior months added 82,000 folks to the payrolls and, uh, you know, wage gains continued average hourly earnings up 4.8% in the past year. 
total hours worked up 4.4%. So you add those two together, and it means that growth in total worker pay has roughly kept pace with inflation. Once again, that's the good news. So don't be surprised if this payroll report, the one that came out yesterday, is in fact revised upward over the next couple of months with the pace of uh, job growth picking up. And uh, assuming the current administration's OSHA rules are not resurrected and or other new burdensome rules and restrictions not imposed, the labor market should continue to heal. Now, another report, we had growth in the service sector continue to accelerate. The composite index hit the highest level ever. Uh, Gains were broad-based. All 18 industries reported growth. Now, I don't know how you can be distressed about what's going on in the economy when you get these kinds of numbers. Now, this is not coffee table conversation. It's not something you talk, hey, have you heard about the service sector? I understand that. But please understand that there is underneath the market some very significant um, strong foundations. Over to the energy sector. OPEC Plus, I think that's an interesting title. That's OPEC and a group of Russian-led oil producers. Anyhow, all those cats have agreed to continue pumping more crude. They're going to bet that the uh, demand in a post-lockdown world will outweigh any hit to economic activity. Now, here's one you can use at your next cocktail party. Gasoline prices today are actually lower than they were at their peak in the summer of 2008. They're currently averaging about 334 nationally. This is according to the Automobile Club of America that was, and I looked that up on uh, Thursday. So compared uh, with in mid-2008, we were paying on an inflation-adjusted basis, $5.23. Yowzer. Now, it wasn't that on the pump at the time, uh, but that's what it would be in today's money. Now, the current president says, and I'm quoting, U.S. gas prices will drop soon but it'll take time. I'm sorry, that gave me a headache. (laughs) We'll drop soon, but it'll take time. I love it. Okay, so real estate. Home prices continuing to increase rapidly, but not as fast as they were late last year through the early part of this year. The Case-Shiller Index uh, jumped up a little bit in September. It's up 19.5% versus a year ago. Price gains, uh, Phoenix and Tampa were the leaders. Chicago and Minneapolis had the slowest priced increases. Pending home sales, uh, contracts on existing homes up 7.5% in October. This suggests a November gain in existing home sales. Uh, and this looks like it's going to be the best year ever for existing home, well, excuse me, uh, best year in 15 years for existing home sales. We've also got construction spending up 8.6%. That's across the board. And the manufacturing sector continued to expand in November. This at a slightly faster pace. 13 of the 18 industries were reporting growth. Strong service, strong manufacturing, low interest rates, low inflation. I give you a strong stock market, folks. So the Consumer Price Index report is going to be out this coming Friday. That measures inflation at our level. And if that core inflation number for November is less than uh, six-tenths of a percent, which was the number in October, that probably will help um, kind of uh, calm fears of any runaway inflation, which, by the way, is certainly not the case right now. But we've also seen commodity prices drop sharply, sharply in the past few days. 
it's too early to say it's a trend, but it's certainly worth keeping an eye on. Now, the announcement on the 10th of November that the Consumer Price Index for October, you know how we do it after the month is over. Anyhow, it was up 6.2% from a year earlier. Well, I don't think that was a surprise to anybody who actually uh, has been in a grocery store or put gasoline in their car recently. Inflation is back, it's real, and it's biting into the budgets of everyone. But please understand, one of the biggest challenge I think we have right now, and this is my personal opinion, is this perception issue. You know, uh, and I'm going to talk about this here in a little while, but, you know, with the with the media, it's all inflation all the time. I mean, that's all that's going on. They've managed to uh, push the, the bug off the headlines, and now they're just talking inflation. Okay. But the fact is that it's not very high right now. And even at 5%, it's not very high in the greater scheme of things. The annual average inflation for the United States has been 3% a year going back to 1926. So, yeah, okay, right now for this month it's 6.2%, but is that a trend? It doesn't appear to be, but, of course, that's what we're going to have to find out. Now, Dr. Milton Friedman, he of the University of Chicago and Nobel Prize winner, had this to say, inflation is always too much money chasing too few goods. It's basically supply and demand. And also, I think, is inflation being one of the very best reasons why you own stocks with growing dividends. All right, let's, let's kind of put aside for the minute, uh, a qu- we can't answer your question anyway. How long will this inflation spike last? <laughs> well, of course, if I knew that, I'd be taking some very significant uh, positions right now, wouldn't I? Yeah, and, and is it transitory or not? Mr. Powell says we shouldn't be using transitory. Okay. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It just means that inflation isn't going to be uh, no percent as it's been for the last five or so years. That's not accurate, but not very high in either case, in any case. So, you know, the the signs in, well, unclear is, I think, the clearest way to look at it. Sure, inflation's at a 30-year high, as I just described, but interest rates remain relatively low, and gold, which is widely believed by some folks to be an efficient short-term inflation hedge, despite all factual evidence to the contrary, is lower than it was a year ago. Gold uh, yesterday was settled at $1,785 an ounce the end of the year, uh, December 20. It was 1893, and it's trending lower. So, in any case, if we were, in fact, headed into this 70s dial stagflation, that's a word they had to go out and dig up, uh, both of these indicators we've had have been sending up uh, the proverbial flares a long time before this. Likewise, a rising dollar. It's near a 16-month high. If stagflation was imminent, it would already be going south, and <laughs> let's just say quickly. Um, and put aside, if you will, uh, the not insignificant fact that at about 4,500 on the S&P 500, which oh, just happens to be about where we are, the index is up, as I say, about 20% this year. If your cost of living is up 6% in this period of time, again, at this high number that came out in November, and your capital is up four times that much, 
not only could you say you hedged against inflation, but you have beat it 15 ways from Sunday. Yet I say again, put this aside, because short-term comparisons are really only good to headline writers, not serious investors. So let's go back instead, did a little homework. There was a, the last year in which inflation ran at an annual rate of six. Now annual rate of six percent for twelve months, not just monthly blips. So that was nineteen ninety. Now I was there. I'm sure more than one or two of you were as well. Uh, but I, sh- I should say I was there in the context of being in the market. Now be assured that. Every single headline about inflation you've seen this year probably mirrors everything you would have been reading and hearing in late 1990, almost verbatim. And that was a time when investors personally remembered the 70s stagflation, which had peaked just maybe 10 years earlier. So here's what happened. In 1990, the S&P ended, uh, and this was a recession year, uh, we had the Gulf War looking at over our shoulder just a few days away. Anyhow, the S&P, believe it or not, was at 330. The current level at about 4,600, it's up 14 times. Okay, that's since 1990. The cash dividend of the S&P, which is what retired stock investors like to uh, use for cash flow, was 1209 in 1990, $12.09. Data from Bloomberg suggests that for the full year this year, it's going to be $61.03. Don't know where the three cents came from, but $61.03. That suggests that stock income has quintupled. And uh, by the way, the uh, 10 year in 1990 was 8.5% as opposed to 1.3%. And let's see. Oh, yes, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, in December of 90. Uh, well, the number was 133.8. In October, the most recent report, it was 276. So basically, the cost of living has barely doubled. Okay, so let me summarize. Mainstream stocks, and this is again as represented by the S&P 500, are up in value 14 times since the last time we had inflation at 6% for a whole year. See, the markets do go up, even with inflation and interest rates are higher. Please put that down somewhere. Cash income from mainstream stocks, up five times. Cost of living, up two times. This is why you invest in stocks for the long run. Now, since 1990, we've had six bear markets. So all of this data includes those bear markets. And did you know that two of them? Two of those dudes, the 2000 to 2002 and the 2007 to 2009, they were the deepest bear markets since the 1930s. So could it be possible that those had very little effect on a plan-driven long-term stock investor other than to serve as buying opportunities? Aha. So. Why are the values and dividends up as much as they are since 1990? It's as we said before, because earnings have increased, and earnings ultimately drive stock values. Okay, The S&P earned 2265 in 1990. With a month left this year, uh, we're looking at about $200 in S&P earnings. 
So why did the earnings go up that much? Pretty easy. New products and services, technological innovation, increased productivity, global markets. And remember, we had no internet in 1990, and our friends in the Soviet Union were still in business. But the critical issue is the company's pricing power. The fact is that very successful businesses of any type, Stripe, whatever, are generally able to pass increases in their costs onto their consumers. Now, despite the very significant uptick in producer prices this year, the net profit margin of the S&P at just under 13% continues to be nearly as high as it's ever been. And this is according to FactSet. I didn't just make it up. None of this should be taken, however, as a suggestion that stocks are an efficient inflation hedge in the short run. Not true, but no financial asset is. Now, I'm going to go back to Dr. Siegel again, and uh, he also hangs out at the Wharton Business School when he's not adding to his book. But uh, anyway, he says, and I'm quoting, in the long run, stocks are extremely good hedges against inflation, while bonds are not. Uh, it's all about the dividends because, you see, every investment you make is ultimately designed to produce a, 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 an income. Now, whether that income is now, as in dividends and interest, or in the future, as in long-term gains, um, that's what you do it for. And so you're doing it in what's called for what's called total return. That's growth plus your dividend. That is it. Now, when you look at the uh, S&P over the years, you know, if you think, well, you know, dividends, that's such a big deal. Well, 44% of the total return in the S&P is from dividends. So, uh, yeah, they're not a bad thing to have. And, you know, funding for your two-person retirement, shoot, even for a one-person retirement, has to be designed to preserve your purchasing power. Now, 84% of the S&P companies do pay a dividend, so that makes it kind of easy. And since 1960, the cash dividend is up from $1.98 to $56.70. That's compound annual growth rate, the CAGR, it's called, C-A-G-R, of 5.8%. And again, to kind of reiterate what I was saying just a little while ago, uh, an increase in cash income from mainstream stocks of about 29 times while the consumer price index, again, the inflation rate, was up about nine times over the same period since 1960. See, that that's a protection you can't get from fixed income issues because the good and the bad news is they're fixed income. They can't raise their cash flow. Now, let me make uh, some snide remarks about my friends in financial journalism. Um, you know... They have an emotional and intellectual commitment to scaring everyone out of the stock market. It, I've been doing this, I've been actively involved since April 1973. And I have not, <laughs> in that entire time, ever felt that financial journalism had our proverbial backs when it came to investing. Those folks, the financial journalists, uh, seem to be always happiest when focusing on one economic or financial crisis. As I was saying earlier, you know, they've been all over the virus. Everything is the virus. And now it's probably, and if possible, and again, kind of along the same lines with the virus stuff, they're even happier when the outcome of this particular trend or condition is perfectly unknowable. 
That leaves them free to imagine, create any and every possible bad news outcome. They basically entered uh, what they probably feel is journalism nirvana. All inflation, all the time. We don't have to worry about what we're going to write about. Now, it may very well be the case that inflation is going to get worse before it gets better. Okay. But that's not the main point. The main point is, of course, that at some point it will get better. And that, like all such quote-unquote crises, it is or ought to be irrelevant to the investment decisions of a patient, disciplined, goal-focused, strategy-driven stock investor like you. Now, I want to make the points that, A, this systematic inflation beyond the what we did the three point long term average excuse me three percent long term average is anything but certain in other words these people are oh yeah it's going to be six twelve forty eight percent inflation how do they know they don't know so just let them talk and say well that's interesting and uh, and that in the long run it really won't matter why because you own the single most effortlessly efficient inflation edge ever created and that's a broadly diversified portfolio of mainstream US stocks bingo simply stated you know when you when you go back to when the pandemic struck the fed created far more liquidity than the economy turned out to need now think about this too how strong is an economy when it can just switch on all this money and create it, and to be able to uh, basically uh, support the economy in a time of high stress. I can assure you that not every country can do that. Now, issues like the chip shortage, which is to a great extent actually engineered by the car industry itself, and how many containers uh, ships are stacked up outside of L.A. and Long Beach. I mean, jeepers, what do you expect when you put two and a half trillion of excess savings into people's wallets they're gonna be buying stuff anyhow all of that seems to be more like background noise you know the 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 supply chain mess up with all its iterations seems far less important than the essential fact of too much liquidity slash money sloshing around the system for too long again like dr friedman said we have too much money chasing too few objects Certain areas in the U.S. seem to be stuck on this cycle of fear, each new variant leading to more extreme measures. And this is where policymakers and individuals with what appears to be disproportionate influence live, and their outlooks have become gradually divorced from the rest of the population. Now, what should happen, and I'm making this my own opinion, of course, to reduce this uh, non-particularly transitory spike. We'll look for some of these. Number one, the supply-demand imbalances work themselves out, as they will, presuming uh, regulations, etc., don't get in the way of letting the market find its own level. Higher prices for anything and everything invariably suppresses demand and draws out new supply. You know, in the commodity pits, they always say the cure for high prices is high prices. And by the way, vice versa. So another thing, innovation continues to be massively deflationary. It's been that way for four decades, and it's only that way more so now. For the first time since before 2008-9, we and the rest of the world are experiencing a capital expansion boom for the ages. 
Barry Ritholtz, who writes for Fortune and is a, a, a blog writer as well. Anyhow, he wrote, if you believe inflation can write, excuse me, defeat innovation any more than momentarily, he says you are on the other side of the trade from all those entrepreneurs and innovators. You believe that shipping snarls and port delays and chip shortages are more powerful than all the brains and muscles and hard work of everyone in that group, unquote. I definitely agree with Barry. Uh, and it's not improbable. It's just silly. You know, monetary policy will ultimately reverse course. This isn't the 70s. Don't let anybody tell you that the economy is like the 70s. That's baloney. When we generally did not know that inflation, uh, runaway inflation and economic contraction could even be in the same place at the same time. Paul Volcker, who was the Jerome Powell back in the days of President Reagan, he proceeded to demonstrate that if you drained enough money out of the system and raised those interest rates enough and triggering a sufficiently painful recession, you could break the back of even the most pernicious inflation, which is what they did in the 80s. Now, that was the what they called a nuclear option. Our friends, uh, the politicians and media, would definitely be screaming and yelling uh, uh, but if that the treatment would be worse than the disease, but I don't believe that's the case. Now, we think widespread shutdowns are unlikely in response to this new or any other bug variant. And, you know, quite frankly, recent election uh, returns in Jersey and Virginia suggest American public's pretty much fed up with the overly cautious policy mix. Now, just just kind of a fun thought. Tomorrow marks a most significant anniversary in the economic and financial history of the U.S., and I hope you'll use it for a, a, a reason for party. That's when Mr. Greenspan said irrational exuberance, and from that point forward, the market took off for three and a half years. So we've got uh, jeepers. I talked too much. We're almost out of time. How did that happen? Well, uh, don't let the talking heads make you uneasy. You know, the best move you can make, regardless of the headlines, turn off the TV, log off your computer when it comes to this crazy in market talk. Don't log off the computer or the TV when the zags are on, however. Cheer them on to final victory. I appreciate you very much listening. Thank you very much. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. We'll be back next week for more money management. Money, money.